listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello and good afternoon on this Wednesday. Edward Keenan in with you on the Alan Carter Show because Alan Carter, uh, living the Alan Carter lifestyle. Enjoying the day off, I hope, somewhere. Either that or working very hard somewhere on on something urgent and important. I expect uh, he's at his leisure. Working very hard hard. on that tan. Uh, And it's going to make for great radio when he comes back all bronzed uh, next week, I assume. It is beautiful and sunny out there. I hear, I have been hearing whispers all day that it's getting going to get too hot soon. But I was outside just a few minutes ago and enjoying the weather down here at Sugar Beach. So I hope you're enjoying the weather wherever you are as well. Um, it's a big week, it seems, for rescue stories. And the first one, uh, it's a sad story in many ways that kind of ended up being also an amazing kind of story in that a man who, in the phrasing of authorities, was in crisis, climbed a dividing wall at the very edge of the Niagara River, right near the Horseshoe Falls, the Canadian Falls at Niagara Falls. So if you've been to Niagara Falls, you've seen that. And we've stood there right at the top of those falls and looked at that river rushing by and how it, it drops off and thought, Holy cow, I wouldn't want to fall into that, right? There's something terrifying to me even just looking at it and awe-striking at the same time. So this guy, in crisis, climbed the wall, wound up in the river, went over the Horseshoe Falls, and yet survived with non-life-threatening injuries. Niagara Parks police were called to the edge of the falls early Tuesday at 4 a.m. amid reports of a man in crisis at the brink of the water. The man climbed a retaining wall after officers arrived... So they stood there watching him, and he dropped into the rushing waters above the Horseshoe Falls. Rescue teams searched the basin below and eventually came upon the men sitting on rocks near the journey behind the Vols observation platform. He went to the hospital and had non-life-threatening injuries. So those rapids right above the Horseshoe Falls travel about 40 kilometers an hour before they reach the 57-meter plunge into the deep basin below. So they can be very deadly. However, just another little nugget. And and as I say, I don't want to at all make light of where this guy was at and the mental situation he was in and the not just potential tragedy, but in some ways an actual tragedy of the trauma he's now been through. But the fact that he survived that fall with only minor injuries, that when the authorities, rescuers came to try and find him, he was just sitting on some rocks, is kind of astounding. And another interesting detail is that the incident on Tuesday occurred exactly 59 years to the day after the first known case of a person surviving an unprotected plunge over the falls. American Roger Woodward, a seven-year-old, survived going over the falls with only a life jacket, and that was an accidental fall with a life jacket on, on July 9th, 1960. The first known adult to survive the falls without protection was Kirk Jones, an American who accomplished the feat in 2003. And get this, speaking of tragedy, (laughs) he died in 2017 while attempting to go over the Horseshoe Falls a second time. What? Why would... 
I guess he was thinking I survived it once. I'll get in the Guinness Book of World Records or whatever. They got a Guinness Museum right there in in Niagara Falls, Ontario. His confidence was high. Yeah, so it was deadly. Uh, thank God this guy survived. I hope he gets the treatment he needs both for his minor physical injuries, but more so I, I hope uh, mentally that he works out okay, given that he survived this crisis. You know, that Kirk Jones, who survived the first time and then went the second time, you just kind of think, this is one of these Darwin Awards ways, like I don't want to die in, in this stupid way where everybody's going to laugh at my death because I did something so stupid to inspire it. <laughs> And uh, thankfully, we don't have deaths, but on the same rescue beat this week, we have a story and a reminder for local Toronto people here of good advice, which I say this as a Scarborough boy who went to high school at Cardinal Newman High School, which the campus there backs out onto the Scarborough Bluffs. You go past the racquetball courts and the portables, and then you go out past the rugby field and the track eventually you come to the edge of the bluffs and it's a beautiful view over there and all of that but being a Is high school a student there was not when i went there huh. most of the now. bluffs doesn't have a fence they have some signs that say stay away from the bluffs it's pretty obvious where the the edge marker is yeah. where the edge is huh. often there'd be that orange construction fencing in areas that were deteriorating or right, whatever right. but you know i spent a good portion of my teenagerhood social life drinking on the Scarborough Bluffs. I mean, if you're in certain areas of Scarborough, it's like rural kids have bush parties. We have bluff parties, right? You oh, the belly bluff. <laughs> you fill your belly at the top of the bluffs. Cudia Park, Cathedral Bluffs Park, like there's a bunch of parks there at the top. But even then, you know, 16 years old, half in the can, we were smart enough and we knew You just stay away from them. You don't climb on them. You don't go over the edge. And yet, earlier this week, there were two teenagers who had to be rescued because they were climbing up the bluffs. They got halfway up. They were trapped. Somebody called 911. And Toronto police, you know, this happens all the time. I actually have spoken about it on this radio station earlier this year when somebody was there, but I feel like it's a public service message (laughs) That, that doesn't seem to sink through. The bluffs are made of like this sandy, chalky material. They are, in fact, on their own, without any help from people climbing them or anything, deteriorating, like falling apart slowly year after year just because of the weather. They're incredibly unsafe to climb. You they're, can't get a grip. They're cliffs made of clay, yeah. right? They're beautiful to look at from the bottom. The view from the top is beautiful. The view from halfway up is terrifying and dangerous. Don't, don't do it. But the city of Toronto has had to send out some notifications now to say, enjoy the bluffs from a safe distance. In 2018, last year, there were 16 separate rescue incidents on the Scarborough Bluffs. And that required, these are from the city of Toronto now, 413 Toronto Fire Services staff to be dispatched. 413, which amounted to 22,935 minutes of staff time, which is uh, 382 person hours. Firefighters last year spent almost 400 hours, that's 10 work weeks, rescuing people 
who were trapped on the Scarborough Bluffs. So I think that you're saying your PSA is uh, you should be photoshopping yourself <laughs> from the bluffs. Yes. From all the other people who yeah. were rescued. Yeah. Photoshop it. Don't. Don't. Don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, they're beautiful. Go look at them. Look at them from the bottom. Look at them from the top. Don't climb them. Yeah, there's Why a do nice we beach. To... There's a beach at the bottom, which is also nice. So hang on yeah, at the yeah. beach and then no, look yeah. up. Bluffers yeah. Park has yeah. a beautiful beach at the bottom. You can see the, the sort of the scraggly, cliffy ones that look like uh, stalactites or stalagmites. Yeah. I'm yeah, not yeah, sure yeah. which ones. They, they kind of stick up in spears of sandy-colored clay. Yeah. They're quite beautiful. They're not good for climbing on. They're not no. good for climbing on. There's sort of an ongoing story that we've been covering in the Toronto Star, also covering here on Global News Radio, and everybody's been talking about it, is various cuts that the provincial government has implemented and what they mean when they trickle down into action. And some of those, in particular, have been education cuts, which, over time, we get to see sort of how the rubber hits the road, how a certain percentage cut in funding for a certain department translates into programs and services, staffing levels, and all of that. And in the Toronto Star today, my colleague Kristen Rishoe has a story about how Ontario's new class size in high schools and elementary schools, what that means for school boards who are implementing cuts. Because when you have a larger class size, it necessarily means that you have fewer classes. And that translates into in many cases, fewer classes in each subject being offered. Joining me on the phone now to discuss this is Kristen Rishoe of the Toronto Star. Kristen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. We're looking at the issue of class sizes here, which was controversial even when the education funding budgets were announced. Uh, but now it, it seems to be having a directly negative effect on science, technology, engineering, math, STEM classes. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the thing that I was curious about because the government, um, the previous education minister, Lisa Thompson, and the current one, Stephen Lecce, both talked about the importance of STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, and math. And those are the courses that I kept hearing about that were being canceled in schools. Um, you know, I was at the parent council meeting at my own kid's school, and the principal said, well, I have to cancel computer science because I only had 14 kids register for it. Um, and I, I saw that a lot of schools were losing physics. Um, Earth and space science has pretty much disappeared from the grade 12 offerings at many schools. Um, so there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect between what the government was saying it wanted to do and wanted to focus on and what was really happening in schools. So now I see here from your report in the start today that in York Region District School Board, there's 120 total canceled classes, and in the Toronto District School Board, there's 313 total canceled classes. Are STEM classes making up a disproportionate portion of that? Well, here's the thing. That's not even canceling business-related classes like accounting, which I think you could argue are math-related as well. Mm. So it's about one-quarter to one-third of all classes that are impacted. I mean, certainly arts and the humanities are impacted the most, but when the government says it's focusing on STEM, it's surprising that you're losing this many STEM-related classes 
Um, the government's also talked a lot about the importance of the skilled trades. And those kind of tech classes are also going because they require much smaller sizes for safety and schools mm. can't afford to run them anymore. Right. <laughs> well, which is actually very important. Now, what did the province tell you in reaction to this? I mean, these are, these are their, so some of their stated priorities. This is like STEM education, technological education, and the policy they've announced is directly cutting those things, really. What's their response? So their response is a few things. First of all, they say that they're in charge of curriculum, that it's board's decisions to cut classes. Um, they also say that um, as they lose, as they phase out teacher jobs over the next four years, they put an extra top-up in this so-called $1.6 billion attrition fund, um, and that's to save STEM teachers. Um, a lot of boards don't seem to know if that money is separate or not. There wasn't a lot of clarity on that. Um, the other thing that the uh, new education minister is talking about is the revamped uh, grade 10 civics and careers curriculum, which he said will focus on STEM and the importance of the skilled trades. All right. I imagine there are a lot of listeners out there who, like me, sometimes have a hard time trying to navigate exactly, uh, it's like a spin machine or whatever. But it seems that often the provincial government will say when the effect of a, of a budget cut or a new policy is introduced, they'll say something like, this is the board making a decision, and what we suggest is that they should find efficiencies and all of that instead of cutting that programming. But it seems like when they've set average class size targets for the school boards to follow, something like this where they cut a certain number of classes to meet that class size target, there's not a lot of discretion in that, or is there that's something I'm not seeing? Well, the school boards will certainly say that this move to an average of 28 students per high school class up from the current 22, that means fewer bodies, which means fewer classes. Um, You know, and the thing is for boards, I mean, uh, typically salaries, teacher salaries make up more than 80% of their budget. So there's not a lot of wiggle room as it is. And that's what they'll tell you. Kristen Rishoi is, uh, she reports from Queen's Park for the Toronto Star. Thanks for uh, walking us through us today. You can see her story at the uh, Toronto Star today. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks so much, Ed. So that's uh, sort of one big story today that I think is worth paying attention to out of Queen's Park. One out of Ottawa comes from the sort of the Bank of Canada, the federal bank, which announced today, to the surprise apparently of, of not very many economists, most of the experts kind of predicted this, but it was still confirmed that the Bank of Canada was going to hold interest rates for the time being, likely into next year, but certainly for this quarter, while, you know, also warming of global trade uncertainty and what it could mean for for people in Canada and all of that. There have been some inflation in Canada, which led to maybe some people speculating or fearing that they might creep up interest rates to try and rein in inflation. However, global trade uncertainty creates a future where there's fear of a economic slowdown that could influence us, which would suggest a rate cut. And yet, it seems like most people thought they're going to just hold the line on interest rates. That's what they've done. When I hear news like that, I imagine there's some of you out there who who know if you've got a variable interest rate mortgage, you know that interest rate hikes mean something for you, (laughs) interest rate cuts mean something for you. But beyond that, it's often hard to sort out what this top-level Bank of Canada announcements mean for the average person. Earlier today, Rabina Ahmed Haq, our finance expert, told Kelly that this rate was good news for Canada. 
So the Bank of Canada is holding its rate at 1.75%. And what's really important to note here is this is the sixth time in a row that the Bank of Canada has held rates. And this is when around the world we're hearing about other central banks cutting rates So making money cheaper to borrow because they're worried about their own economy and how it is going forward. So this is actually a good news story for Canada. Uh, Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polo is basically saying, we are doing better in spite of everything that's happening around us. So many people who are sitting on monster mortgages, especially those in Toronto who maybe have taken seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars uh borrowed by their dream house and if they're on a variable rate mortgage you know even that 0.25 percent increase makes a huge difference in their affordability that affects everyday people that affects homeowners who have mortgages that are tied to the floating rate or the variable rate if you're making a decision today she was just talking about whether you're using this variable rate or a fixed rate mortgage a lot of experts have said for a long time in canada because we've had there was such a period of cutting interest rates, that you're better with the variable rate mortgage, that over the last 15 years, you've been pretty consistently better with a variable rate, because the risk that you're taking there gives you a little bit of a discount to begin with. Rabina says that this time, it might be better to be on a fixed rate mortgage. The one thing that's interesting that's happening right now is that fixed rates have been lower than the variable rate, which is rarely, rarely does that happen. And for the first time ever, um, I'm I'm actually thinking that a fixed rate might pay people, you know, might pay off better than going variable. I mean, historically, those people who've gone with variable rates have done better. They've paid less interest towards their mortgage. Uh, But in this case, you know, fixed rates are lower than 3%. Um, And so that really might be a good place if you are looking to buy a home. Uh, Remember, you still have to go through the stress test. You still have to prove that you can make those payments as if they were two percentage points higher or the Bank of Canada uh, five-year rate, which is over 5%. Uh, So there are still other hurdles that you have to cross, but actual money out of pocket, I mean, if you're getting a rate less than 3%, that might be uh, something to consider if you're going for the fixed rate. Yeah, I'm no expert, but I think a a mortgage rate under 3%, it's hard to go wrong locking that in. I mean, it could could theoretically go lower and you you save a little bit more money, but it's also like, it's hard to see it staying lower than that for, for very long from my admittedly limited perspective on this stuff changing gears a little bit that's a sound uh if you like me i live uh, just north of high park in the junction and so my main route into the city is often lakeshore boulevard my main route out of the city is often lakeshore boulevard too but uh, there's always that certain time of year when you drive down south of the exhibition where they put up the indie indie barricades and if you're driving through there at a time of day when there's not much else traffic, usually at night, you start, hey, look at me. I'm a race car driver. That time of year has arrived, and yet it's also the time of year where that means race closures. The Indy is happening this weekend, so that the road closures associated with the Indy have already begun today. Strawn Avenue southbound uh, has been closed from Fleet Street to Lakeshore Boulevard. And as of tonight, 8 p.m. tonight, Lakeshore Boulevard West will be closed from Strawn Avenue to uh, British Columbia Drive at the Exhibition Place. And those roads are going to remain closed all weekend and reopen on Sunday at 11 p.m. So can't use Lakeshore Boulevard. You're stuck on the Gardner. 
for the weekend. But then when they do reopen, it takes them a while to take those barriers down. So you still get that. You still get that feel. That feel. That that race car driver feel. Yesterday on the program, we were talking to our European correspondent for Global News, Redmond Shannon, about his reporting on one of the new personal battlegrounds for those looking to fight climate change, which is air travel. As we discussed yesterday, the personal carbon footprint that comes from uh, especially a long-haul flight, but the increasing use of airline flights as a means of travel, even for short hops, uh, Toronto to New York, Toronto to Ottawa, Toronto to Montreal, in Europe, $25 flights from England to Ireland or to France. Uh, that's all adding up, and it's a incredibly large carbon bill that is starting to become due. Redmond told us yesterday about people who are talking about pledging not to fly, but today he joins us on the program to discuss, for people who can't all stop flying, what can consumers who are concerned about this do? Redmond, welcome back to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Edward. Uh, Good afternoon. So I understand uh, you spoke to Julia Zhu of Atmosphere about this subject, and it was about different options besides just sort of cutting out flying altogether. Yeah, of course, because we, we have to be real about it. Of course, so many of us for for work uh, need to travel as well. And, you know, we may live far away from our family and so on. So not uh, not flying is, is almost impossible in the modern day, the way we live. So there are other things you can do to perhaps reduce the impact of flying. And one of them includes, of course, carbon offsetting. So a lot of people will be familiar with this. That is, when you book a ticket, um, often the airline itself will offer you the option of spending a few extra bucks um, to offset your flight. And that involves uh, initiatives that include tree planting to pump oxygen back into the air to soak up carbon dioxide from the air or initiatives that um, reduce the amount of carbon that is pumped into the air elsewhere. For example, Atmosphere, this uh, German-based group, they uh, invest in the developing world in projects that uh, make give people stoves that are much more efficient, 80% more efficient Mm. in terms of the amount of carbon they pump into the atmosphere. Uh, solar panels and so on so these types that's where the money goes so you are balancing it out now you're not obviously stopping that carbon from going into the atmosphere but you are balancing it out so that is one thing that they offer and they give you a breakdown of what potentially what impact your flight has and can compare then the flight you're on with other airlines that take that route and that's an important part of it too so they have a an airline index that they 
they produce and their website. So that's yeah, just so you know, Atmosphere is their website. So Atmosphere, F-A-I-R dot D-E is their website. I, I think uh, that's what you might have been about to ask me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, <laughs> anticipating the question there, Edward. But uh, yeah, so that's where you can go to check it out. And they have that where you can um, put in your destination and your, your origin and it shows you and then you can choose the the aircraft that you're using and you, you don't have to choose it if you don't know, of course. But these days you will always, if you look in the fine print when you book, you'll see the type of aircraft you're using. So an older version of, say, an Airbus A320 versus the new A320neo, which is the new uh, very um, more efficient version. There is a big difference. So therefore, if you choose an airline that has the newer aircraft, then the carbon offset, if you decide to buy a carbon offset, is going to be much less. So it is a pretty neat way of being just a bit more aware and educated. Again, we're not, you know, it's really impossible for us to stop flying in many circumstances, but we can be sort of more informed about what we're doing when we do fly. There is something appealing about about the idea of being able to offset. And I know people will choose products that are a bit more expensive if they believe that they're better for the environment. Is this something that has taken off now? We know there are high-profile people, especially politicians or activists, who make a big production about buying carbon offsets, but airlines are offering this option. Is it something that people are picking up on? Well, it's not a big thing that people are picking up on, and a lot of airlines, uh, even though they offer it, they, they say that the pick the pickup is quite small, um, reportedly, according to cer- some surveys that are out there. And airlines are not um, required by law in most places to offer the offset. So uh, it is an option, an option for people rarely take, but more and more people are taking it. This company, Atmosphere, they don't partner up with any airline per se, but they just are there. And if the airline you, you book with doesn't offer it, you can go to their website, Atmosphere, and do it via them and they'll tell you what your flight's carbon offset price should be they do hold it to quite a high standard and although you know the the site as we know the scientific consensus mm. is that carbon dioxide causes climate change there are other elements to flying such as other uh, gases that are emitted at very high altitudes which the jury is out on the additional effect of those they give that sort of gold standard so you're covering all your bases with someone like atmosphere if you book with air canada's partner and it's a company called less uh and you you'll you'll google it you'll find them as well can air canada gives you the option do you want the smaller pure co2 version or do you want to include all gases and it's about double the cost for your offset hmm. so you have okay. those options the the information's there and you know if, if you want to offset you can do it whether the airline offers it or not all right redmond shannon is the europe correspondent for global news thanks for uh, updating us on the options that are available to those of us who are concerned about our carbon footprint when we fly There's a story in the Toronto Star today from Emma Sandry, and the headline is Eat Smart Kale Salad Bags Recalled Over Possible Listeria Contamination, which some people who eat kale only when 
someone else in their family buys it and brings it into their house and serves it to them might be rejoicing, but it's, it's not really a joke when hysteria contamination in the food supply. Uh, so just for an update for people hearing that, the company is recalling 794-gram bags of the salad kit with a best-before date of July 17th and a UPC code of, oh boy, <laughs> it end in 891403. They say anybody who bought the product should not consume it in Ontario, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and Quebec. They have test results that trigger the recall that, um, that make them believe that it could be contaminated with listeria, which can make people feel sick even though the product itself doesn't look or smell bad or anything like that. To discuss this with us is uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Uh, Dr. Sylvain, welcome to the, welcome to the program. You, the question is, I understand some pre-cut salads are especially particularly prone to listeria. Is that right? Yes, that's right. You can find listeria in, in, in soil, water, and uh, Guess where, I mean, lettuce, uh, kale uh, is grown very close to soil. And so, uh, so they're, uh, these, uh, these produce are prone to carry listeria, unfortunately. And, and the problem with listeria is that you can't get rid of it. In fact, if you actually have listeria and you try to wash it off, it could actually spread uh, even further on the leaf and, uh, with, uh, with, uh, say kale or, with romaine lettuce in particular, it gets into the cracks. You can't see it. You can't smell it. And uh, I think the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is doing the right thing and asking uh, companies to recall uh, the product, even though there hasn't been any uh, any cases of uh, hospitalization or anything like that. So this is the, this is the new era of food safety, just uh, preventive measures, uh, companies and the agency is just trying to protect the public. So, I mean, as you say there, it's actually kind of good news that they're recalling this even as a precautionary measure because in the past maybe we would have waited until people got sick before we realized. Well, you go back 11 years ago uh, with with the 2008 Listeria crisis, uh, with maple leaf, you may remember mm-hmm. that, but 23 Canadians lost their lives. And there were 56 other cases that we suspect that perhaps that, uh, that, uh, that were linked to, to the recall. So since then, we've learned a great deal with Lister. We actually trace cases before we didn't. And so this is good news. Uh, they, they actually, they have been tracing Listeria cases in the United States for quite some time, but, uh, uh, in Canada, in eight or nine years now, so it's. It, I think the agency is doing a really good job making sure that the, that the public is protected, especially in the summertime. We eat a lot of salad, way more salad, and uh, in a nano, you can actually um, affect a lot of people if just one lot is contaminated. Uh, forgive me if I'm uh, backtracking a little bit here to repeat it, but I, I'm unfamiliar as I'm sure many people are. I know listeria can make you very sick. It can even kill you. But I'm unfamiliar with how it comes out. So you said that it's in soil. Is it? Do these vegetables or foods come into contact with it and therefore become contaminated? or does it? Exactly. Animals can carry listeria. I mean, mm. in fact, listeria can be anywhere, really. But if it's in your food, that's a problem. Because <laughs> you ingest it, and if, once it gets into your system... 
you can get rid of it uh, as long as your immune system is very strong. If you have a weakened uh, or a compromised immune system for one reason or another, uh, you're, you're in trouble. And so I'm thinking about the, the elderly, uh, young children, um, women who are pregnant. Uh, those demographics uh, need to be protected as much as possible. Now, you said, and I think it bears repeating a little bit, that the the important thing for a lot of people to know about listeria when they hear uh, about a recall like this or that the food may be contaminated is that washing the food off doesn't help and, in fact, can cross-contaminate your entire kitchen. You can spread it around to other things. Uh, so so you've got to just dispose of it. But uh, short of waiting for a recall based on this kind of testing, are there foods that people who may be at risk should be particularly wary of? It's a matter of waiting to hear, but our system is actually getting much better. It's becoming, we're becoming much more proactive uh, assessing that you do. I mean, we need to appreciate the fact that these products are coming from California and Arizona. They travel miles and miles before uh, they get here. And if there is one case or there's some suspicions of a, of a case, uh, a lot of product, uh, a lot of products are, are affected. So uh, these large-scale farms uh, can uh, can really turn on a dime, uh, making sure that uh, some channels are shut down, and uh, and in this case, uh, many provinces are affected. And um, yeah, so the brand Eat Smart is uh, for this summer. Is if you're smart, don't eat eat smart. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Dr. Sylvain Charlebois of uh, Dalhousie University. Thanks for uh, walking us through that. And as he was saying, uh, the product is Eat Smart Sweet Kale Salad, pre-cut kale salad. It's in 794 gram bags with a best before of July 17th. Uh, they are suggesting that you dispose of them. Uh, do not eat them. If you've already eaten them, you may want to contact a medical professional to make sure that you're checked. And if you have vomiting, nausea, or persistent fever, then you'd, it's all the more urgent that you do so. Dangerous salad. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous salad. Well, you'll remember there was like a nationwide recall slash shortage very recently of romaine lettuce. Because again, that it was this your Caesar salad is out to get you. I remember that well because I really, really like Caesar salad. I think in that case it was E. coli, right? Or it was it was not listeria. It was a different. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, there are all different reasons why they re- recall things, but killer salads are becoming a. Uh, annual sort of thing. So it's something to watch out for. Uh, Me being on this program is becoming a daily thing this week, and so I will be back tomorrow, but I am out of time for today. Caesar salad. Ah!